You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is the second installment in our Raiders of the Lost Cause series, where we are discussing the Confederate raids on Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, and getting to know Jeb Stewart and Jubal Early, two of the central figures in the Lost Cause narrative. Last time we met Jeb Stewart, one of the Civil War's biggest personalities. Uh, Then we looked at Stewart's raid on the small town of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, Being north of the Mason-Dixon line, we might have expected that Chambersburg wouldn't have suffered too terribly much from the war. There's Gettysburg for sure, but otherwise, northern areas had it a lot easier, right? Actually, yes, that's right. Chambersburg just happens to be an exception. And that's what makes it so interesting, at least to me. You see, after Stewart's raid, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania's role in the Civil War wasn't quite over yet. In fact, the worst was yet to come. In 1863, the year after Stuart's visit, Chambersburg was visited by more than a few Confederates before and after their fateful trip to nearby Gettysburg. That campaign was an ordeal for the little town and resulted in substantial property damaged and lost. Even after Gettysburg, though, the real devastation was yet to come. But before we fully shift our focus and follow the fate of Chambersburg during the last years of the war, we probably ought to recount the rest of Jeb Stewart's military career, uh, which in this case happens to mean recounting the remainder of Stewart's life. And this is going to be more of a Cliff's Notes uh, than we normally do. In the fall of 1862, after receiving the terrible news of the death of his four-year-old daughter from typhoid, Stuart headed up the scouting of rebel positions around Fredericksburg. The insight that he provided helped Lee, Longstreet, and Jackson form up the Army of Northern Virginia into the elevated brick wall uh, against which Burnside repeatedly hurled Union soldiers in December of that year. During the battle itself, the mounted artillery under Stuart picked apart approaching Yankees from the rebel flank. And afterwards, Stuart led a raid into Washington's suburbs, resulting in a wealth of supplies and destruction of important infrastructure. At Chancellorsville, Stuart led the recon units that identified Hooker's vulnerable right flank. The cavalry, with Stuart running the show, then joined Stonewall Jackson's flanking march that resulted in the Confederate victory. Of course, in the process, Jackson himself was gravely wounded in a friendly fire incident. Command of his corps descended to A.P. Hill, who was also wounded, and then to Robert Rhodes, who turned it over to Stuart. Rhodes, believing Stuart was more familiar and experienced with the entirety of the corps and was therefore in a better position to assume command. Up to that point, Stuart had spent the war commanding cavalry and now found himself in charge of an entire infantry corps. He finished the Chancellorsville campaign in command, including executing another flank attack, 
and then A.P. Hill resumed the position, at which point Lee opted to return Stuart to his cavalry post. Shortly after, Stuart commanded the Confederate side in what proved to be the largest standalone cavalry battle of the war, at Brandy Station, a railroad stop near Culpeper, Virginia. Stuart had been instructed to cross the Rappahannock and to harass Union advance positions, but he allowed himself to become distracted, which he had a habit of doing, and Union Cavalry General Alfred Pleasanton caught him off guard. Now, the distraction was basically that Stuart had decided to have a parade. You know, show off a little bit. Uh, quoting the American Battlefield Trust, quote, As May turned to June, Stuart held a series of grand reviews of his horsemen, culminating with a review by Robert E. Lee himself on June 8, 1863. Lee inspected nearly 12,000 gray-clad horsemen and several battalions of horse artillery, end quote. So while Stuart is distracted by these reviews, Pleasanton is planning to sneak across the Rappahannock and hit him in the chops. Pleasanton's plan was to dispatch two cavalry units to cross the river first thing in the morning on June 9th at two different fords. One of the teams, under Brigadier John Buford, succeeded in taking Stuart's 10,000 cavaliers by surprise from the north. The other team, which was supposed to attack simultaneously with Buford, got lost during the night march and didn't make it to the battle until a few hours after Buford's attack. Nonetheless, it was an intense, bitterly contested fight. Stephen Hyslop, writing for National Geographic and quoting a couple original accounts, describes Brandy Station thusly, quote, It was a close fight, and a furious one, the largest cavalry battle fought during the war. And now quoting Confederate Major Walter Taylor, such charging and yelling was never before witnessed and heard on this continent. And back to High Slop. Opposing ranks of troopers met head on with, now he's going to quote a Confederate cavalier, an indescribable clashing and slashing. End quote. After what turned out to be a marathon 10 hour battle, Pleasanton withdrew back across the Rappahannock. Stuart's rebels held the field and had taken fewer casualties. But, as Alan Axelrod notes, quote, Brandy Station hinted at Stuart's vulnerability to the growing spirit and competence of the Union cavalry. The Southern press, in particular, took note, and Confederate morale suffered accordingly, end quote. The bad press after Brandy Station was one of the worst things that could have happened to Stuart in terms of his state of mind and military performance. A Richmond paper opined, for example, quote, If General Stewart is to be the eyes and ears of the army, we advise him to see more and be seen less. End quote. Stop showboating. Do your job. But that wasn't the way Jeb Stewart worked. Though he was an outwardly boastful extrovert, Stewart was someone whose self-esteem depended in large part on how he was perceived by others. He loved newspaper stories about his daring exploits, stories about his carelessness affected his ego and made him insecure. So instead of focusing on how Southern cavalry should properly respond to the rapidly increasing competence of the opposing horsemen, Stuart was distracted by thoughts of fixing his image in the press. As a fellow cavalier who rode with Stuart put it, quote, I can't imagine anyone more likely to suffer in his own feelings than General Jeb, 
from the withdrawal of that popular applause which he is so fond of sunning himself in. End quote. He thrived on the praise, but then he also dwelled on the criticism. And this mindset, the uh, emphasis on his individual accomplishments and reputation over the success of the larger army, would lead to what is perhaps the worst performance of Stuart's military career, and it would come at a decidedly inopportune time. Now, the next chapter for Jeb Stuart is the Gettysburg Campaign. And kind of keep in the back of your mind that during this campaign, there is rebels running in and out of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, often helping themselves to supplies, damaging property, and generally disrupting life in the small Pennsylvania town. To start, with regard to Stuart, I'm going to quote a writer and artist by the name of Marvin Pacula from the Centennial Album of the Civil War, published all the way back in 1960, writing in collaboration with fellow New Yorkers William Ryan and David Rothstein. Quote, Stuart, after defeating the Federal Cavalry at Fleetwood, or Brandy Station, passed again between the Federal Army and Washington with orders to meet early at York, marching almost without rest for eight days and nights, the last three with almost constant fighting, he joined Lee's army at Gettysburg, bringing with him a large train of captured federal supplies. On the third day of the battle, he led a fierce attack upon the cavalry on the right flank of the Union line. End quote. Now, Pacula's charcoal drawing of Jeb Stuart in his 1960 book is pretty darn good. I'm no expert on, on this sort of thing, but I think it really captures uh, uh, Jeb's personality. But that description of um, Stuart's role at Gettysburg seems uh, a tad incomplete. Uh, what happened was that Lee dispatched Stuart as the march north began with some pretty vague orders. Stuart was supposed to screen the Army of Northern Virginia's right flank, keeping an eye on the Army of the Potomac and conducting whatever raids were feasible. At the same time, Lee instructed Stuart to watch the passes through the mountains that the Yankees would need to go through to confront Lee's army and to judge for himself, quote, whether you can pass around without hindrance, meaning complete another circle around the Union army. Most importantly, Lee expected Stuart to keep him apprised of what was going on with the Federal Army. Stuart, probably hungry for another grand adventure to distract from the criticism he received after Brandy Station, decided to ride way east, and then even further east, when Union infantry blocked his intended route. Now, it might not be entirely fair to say that Stuart drifted way off course. Uh, part of the problem was that Stuart kept running into Union troops, which made him keep altering his route. Uh, there was unexpected skirmishing at Haymarket and Fairfax Courthouse in Virginia, and then again at Rockville, Maryland, where the rebels captured 150 federal supply wagons, and then more fighting at Westminster, Maryland. The captured wagons held a nice haul of supplies, which was good, but moving them with the cavalry slowed Stuart down even more. Stuart did manage to uh, do some damage to substantial infrastructure and generally scare residents of what is now the Beltway area, but that was a lot less important than the fact that he was way behind schedule and Lee was relying on him for intelligence that Lee wasn't getting. 
Even once Stewart got into Pennsylvania, he couldn't help but get delayed. At Hanover, Stewart got involved what was basically a full-scale battle with federal cavalry under Judson Kilpatrick and hard-fighting Brigadier George Armstrong Custer. There was some fairly intense close-quarter fighting right inside the town itself. As in, these guys are in downtown Hanover, riding up and down the streets on horseback, slashing at each other with sabers. Just imagine if you're a local uh, Mennonite tradesman or something, uh, just minding your own business on a Tuesday. And all of a sudden, you have hundreds or more troopers, including Jeb Stewart and George Armstrong Custer, galloping all around the streets of your little town, blasting at each other with revolvers and sword fighting. It had to be pretty memorable. As a brief aside, the fairly small town of Hanover, Pennsylvania, which is in York County and today has a population of only about 16,000, is now proudly known as the snack food capital of the world. Hanover is the headquarters of Utz, whose excellent potato chips you may be familiar with, as well as Snyder's of Hanover, known for their pretzels. Now, to my palate, Ouija pretzels are the tastier pretzels particularly if you're a fan of the sourdough hard variety. And where is the Ouija Pretzel Company headquartered, you may be asking? Why, Hanover, Pennsylvania, of course. And rounding things out, Martin's Potato Chips and Good's Potato Chips are not quite in Hanover, but they're both very close nearby. To clarify, the uh, Hanover, Pennsylvania Chamber of Commerce is not a sponsor of this show, I just happen to be a big fan of uh, pretzels and potato chips. Now, returning to Jeb Stewart, after he was finally able to disengage from Kilpatrick in Hanover, Stewart and company rode for York, the town where he was uh, supposed to rendezvous with Yule's corps. But Yule had left the day earlier. So Stewart rode for Carlisle, Pennsylvania, because he basically didn't have any place better to go. Now, to kind of uh, create a mental map, which maybe I should have done earlier, we're talking about a four-county area in south-central Pennsylvania. Moving from west to east along the Maryland border are Franklin County, uh, where Chambersburg is situated, then Adams County, the site of Gettysburg, and then finally York County. And bordering all three to the north is Cumberland County, uh, location of Carlisle the town steward is, is presently riding toward. So when he makes Carlisle on July 1st, Stewart is finally able to connect with some infantry. The problem, though, was that it was Union, not Confederate infantry. So rather than keep moving, Stewart opted to attack the Union infantry, which was a relatively small force, and to task his men with setting fire to strategically important Union assets uh, in Carlisle, which included a small army base and uh, gas facilities. The U.S. Army's War College is in Carlisle, Pennsylvania today, but it wasn't established until 1901. Uh, Finally, late on July 1st, Stuart received word that the rebel army was at Gettysburg, and they were already fighting. Stuart's cavalry rode south and joined them uh, during the afternoon of July 2nd. So Stuart had gone on another thrilling adventure, But in the process, he had also completely lost touch with Lee, neglected to screen for the Army of Northern Virginia or to guard the mountain passes. So as the bulk of the Confederate Army had moved north into central Pennsylvania, 
Lee had no idea just how close the Union Army had reached. Lee had given Stuart too much discretion, and Stuart had exercised it poorly. So without Stuart as his eyes and ears, the Army of Northern Virginia had bumped into the Army of the Potomac almost by accident, resulting in major Confederate disappointment at Gettysburg. The whole episode was a catastrophe of war-losing proportions, as Alan Axelrod put it. By the time Stuart and the cavalry he led arrived on the field, the second day's fighting had mostly concluded, and they were all utterly exhausted from the ride anyway. Lee, who you'll remember thought very highly of Stuart, was not impressed with the captured Union wagons that Stuart presented, and adjacent to a no-doubt genteel but stern chewing out, uh, the details of which have unfortunately been mostly lost to history, Lee commented, Well, General, you are here at last. Stuart would partially redeem himself during the series of battles that comprised Grant's overland campaign, but he didn't get the opportunity for any more audacious, media-friendly escapades, and he would never again have the opportunity to visit Pennsylvania or to make social calls upon the lovely young women of Frederick County, Maryland. Instead, his cavalry repeatedly found itself fighting rearguard actions as Grant pressed forward and the rebels were forced to withdraw and reposition. Following the wilderness, for example, Stuart's cavalry played a vital role by securing and holding the important Spotsylvania Courthouse crossroads until the bulk of the rebel army could arrive and position for a defense. By that point in the war, the Confederate cavalry no longer enjoyed anywhere near the advantage it held early on. If anything, by 1864, Union cavalry had surpassed the rebels. Yankee horsemen and the officers who led them were performing much, much better than they had early on. Talented younger officers like Philip Sheridan and George Armstrong Custer fought every bit as hard as the rebels, and their men frequently had fresher horses and superior firearms. It was Sheridan who, in May 1864, with Grant's approval, consolidated Union cavalry and embarked on a mission to destroy Stuart's opposing rebel horsemen. Sheridan was a 33-year-old Irish Catholic born in New York and raised in Ohio. He had basically lucked into a West Point appointment as a young man when the nominating congressman's first choice failed the entrance exams. At West Point, he hadn't been a particularly good student, and he got in trouble for starting fights. But when the Civil War started, Sheridan rose rapidly through the ranks, as superiors, especially U.S. Grant, recognized him as a talented officer and hard-nosed fighter. Incidentally, Sheridan, who managed vast areas of the Western Plains after the Civil War and played a big role in the establishment of Yellowstone National Park, is attributed with uh, coining the phrase, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, which he reportedly said in response to a tribal chief's declaration that his tribe were good Indians. Sheridan, though, denied having ever made that statement. Sheridan's plan for Stuart was to draw out the rebel cavalry by threatening Richmond and repeatedly raiding Confederate supply lines nearby. With Southern supplies as limited as they were, Stuart had no choice but to confront Sheridan's 12,000 Yankee Cavaliers. Stuart, though, could only muster 3,000 rebel riders for the job. 
The result was Yellow Tavern, an extended back-and-forth cavalry clash just north of Richmond. The rebel cavalry succeeded in stopping Sheridan's advance on Richmond, but it was costly. During the battle, the famous rebel cavalier directing Confederate forces stood out. Fancy uniforms have their drawbacks. And a Yankee private spotting a clear shot at a high-value target nailed Stuart in the abdomen with a large-caliber revolver. Jeb Stuart hung on for a day and then died on May 12, 1864, just 31 years old. His earlier confession, written to a friend, I never expect to come out of this war alive, had proven prophetic. Stoic as he was, Robert E. Lee was reportedly emotionally affected by news of Stuart's death. Informing fellow Confederate officers of the loss of Stuart, Lee said simply, He never brought me a piece of false information. Now, there were an awful lot of rebel officers who died during the war. But Jeb Stuart was a particularly noteworthy loss for the South. With his young age, leadership abilities, and personal charisma, he seems like someone who might have been good for the country to have around during Reconstruction. Uh, Assuming he would have probably... Uh, gotten involved in politics, and followed Lee's conciliatory lead. As things played out, Stuart, remembered as the forever young, dashing, charismatic cavalier, became a central figure in what has come to be known as the Lost Cause narrative. You could compare the almost mythical status that Southerners assigned to Jeb Stuart after the war to 20th century musicians who died young like Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Buddy Holly, you name them. For instance, a 1928 poem by Stephen Vincent Benet romantically described Stuart as, quote, reckless, merry, religious, theatrical, lover of gesture, lover of panache, with all the actor's grace and all the quick, light charm that makes the women adore him. And the Encyclopedia of Virginia does a good job putting a, a capstone on the Jeb Stuart story. Edited quote, Stuart will forever be remembered as the caped cavalier, leading his troopers through the Virginia woods and waving his plumed hat. With Lee and Jackson, he was enshrined as the third member of the Holy Trinity of the secular religion of the postbellum South. End quote. Okay, now that we're finished with Jeb Stuart's story, which uh, ended up being about five times longer than originally planned, we can turn back to what this episode was technically supposed to be about, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Stuart died in May 1864, so chronologically we're picking up at pretty near the same time. In the summer of 1864, a year after Gettysburg and a couple months after Stuart's death, Grant and Lee were tied up with the Petersburg siege and Confederate General Jubal Early was further west in the Shenandoah Valley. Jubal Early was a 48-year-old Virginia-born lawyer and local politician who had gone to West Point, where he accumulated demerits at near-record pace. While Jeb Stewart was popular and well-liked at West Point, Early was known for being notoriously difficult to deal with. One fellow cadet, Louis Armistead, who died as a brigadier general leading his brigade during Pickett's charge, was booted out of the academy for frustratedly breaking a plate over Early's head in response to a comment from Early 
to which Armistead took offense. Early fought in the Seminole Wars, but was no longer in the army when the Civil War broke out. In the interim, he had a fairly successful legal career and was active in Virginia politics, with a brief hiatus to volunteer for service in Mexico, though he did not see combat there. Interestingly, given his later role as perhaps the strongest champion of the Lost Cause narrative, Early was one of the loudest voices against secession at the Virginia Secession Convention, specifically arguing on behalf of Virginians who were not slave owners and criticizing the attack on Fort Sumter. Despite being a Unionist prior to the war, Early volunteered to serve in the Virginia militia and then the Confederate Army when war proved inevitable. Early spent most of the war under Robert E. Lee in the Army of Northern Virginia, turning in strong performances at 2nd Manassas and Fredericksburg and rising to the rank of Major General. During the Gettysburg Campaign, Early occupied and sought to extract ransoms from two towns in Pennsylvania, York and Gettysburg itself. Like in his West Point days, Early earned a reputation for being difficult in the Army of Northern Virginia. Lee nicknamed him Bad Old Man. The uh, old man part came from Early's being in his late 40s and looking older due to his gray hair and beard and arthritis-induced stoop. And the bad part was, according to the Lynchburg Museum, quote, for being opinionated, his love of chewing tobacco, and for being a master of profanities, end quote. So basically, Early was known to be a contrarian with a bad temper and a big mouth. At one point, Early's superior officer, General Richard Ewell, had Early arrested for conduct subversive of good order and military discipline, end quote. And Early was also uh, something of a nonconformist. Among other things, he maintained a long-term relationship and had four children with a woman to whom he was not married. And you got to remember, in the mid-19th century, that was absolutely scandalous, especially for a man of the upper class. The Shenandoah Valley, where Early's army was based in the summer of 1864, in addition to being a major source of Confederate agricultural production, was viewed as a potential avenue of approach for a rebel advance on Washington. If a Confederate army could march all the way down the valley, which would mean it was moving north-northeast, it could hang a right after crossing the Potomac into Maryland, uh, rather than continuing north across the Mason-Dixon line, and have a relatively straight shot at D.C., unimpeded by the bulk of the Union army further south near Richmond. That eventuality had been a concern in Washington through much of the war. And wouldn't you know it, Jubal Early took a run at it that summer. After a victory over Union forces under David Hunter near Lynchburg, Virginia, in the center-west part of the state, a little over 100 miles due west from Richmond, Early and the 15,000 men who were with him marched down the valley, crossing the Potomac and entering Maryland on July 6. There wasn't much in the way of Union strength in the area to oppose the rebels, other than a stitched-together detachment just east of Frederick, and from there, Early and his men stood relatively close to Washington, with what appeared to be an unopposed line of approach on the Capitol. Quoting James McPherson, quote, This seemed a stunning reversal of the fortunes of war. Northern hopes of capturing Richmond were suddenly replaced by fears for the safety of their own capital. 
The rebels appeared in front of the Washington defenses five miles north of the White House on July 11th. Except for convalescents, militia, and a few odds and ends of army units, there were no troops to man them, for Grant had pulled the garrison out for service in Virginia. End quote. And that's worth emphasizing. Early was only about five miles out from Washington, and most of the soldiers who had been assigned to defend the city were presently with Grant laying siege to Petersburg. There was a genuine danger that bona fide insurgents were going to capture the capital. And this is uh, the setting for a fairly famous scene that you might have heard about. It was a different era, so rather than be rescued away to an undisclosed location by the Secret Service, President Lincoln personally visited the defenses, which were within shooting distance of the Confederates. Indeed, the two sides were in fact exchanging sniper fire. The famously tall Lincoln, made taller by his equally famous top hat, presented rebel snipers with a conspicuous target. A young captain by the name of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. recognized the potential for disaster. Holmes went on to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court and became a historically noteworthy figure in his own right. Uh, He's the one who came up with the clear and present danger doctrine, that he famously illustrated by declaring that um, the freedom of speech protected by the First Amendment does not give you the right to falsely shout fire in a crowded theater. Uh, You've probably heard that quoted, or probably misquoted, more than a few times. So anyway, young Captain Holmes sees old Honest Abe uh, about to get his top hat blown off by a rebel sniper, and shouts at the commander-in-chief, Get down, you damn fool, before you get shot! Lincoln apparently um, found the whole thing amusing and heeded Holmes' advice. Now, if a big part of Early's mission in the Shenandoah Valley had been to relieve pressure on Richmond, and it was, uh, then he had accomplished it. In response to the threat, Grant dispatched the entire 6th Corps of the Army of the Potomac to oppose Early. As much as a scare as the threat was, for Early to actually launch an assault on Washington's daunting defenses, which were impressive, and as the 6th Corps arrived increasingly well-manned, would have been idiotic or even suicidal, and Early knew that. So there was some skirmishing but no battle, and Early ultimately opted to withdraw back to the relative safety of the valley. Even so, Early's foray into the D.C. suburbs inspired a London Times correspondent to write, quote, the Confederacy is more formidable than ever, end quote. Uh, incidentally, uh, McPherson also reports that one of the results of Early's raid was that the price of gold on the open market, or the, uh, the price relative to U.S. dollars, went up considerably, all the way to 285 bucks. Now, uh, part of the high gold prices was due to the Treasury having temporarily suspended the gold standard in 1862, printing unbacked greenbacks to finance the war, which inevitably led to inflation. But considering that the official government set rate had been $18.93 at the time, uh, $285 was a considerable jump. Now, if you have the opportunity to purchase gold for $285 an ounce anytime soon, I would strongly suggest that you take it since it's uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of $1,800 these days, last time I checked. 
Um, after the war, the federal government adopted a deflationary monetary policy that was aimed at returning to the gold standard. Controversially, that included demonetizing silver. But by 1879, the U.S. Treasury could once again exchange paper currency for gold. Uh, the gold standard hung on in one form or another until officially dropped in 1976, though it had been considerably weakened with the 1913 Federal Reserve Act. Notwithstanding the spike in the price of gold, Early was no longer threatening the capital, but union leadership didn't want a sequel, and they were intent on teaching Jubal Early a lesson. So union forces under Generals George Crook and Horatio Wright were dispatched in pursuit of Early's small army. Unfortunately, though, Crook and Wright misinterpreted a repositioning by Early as a withdrawal back toward Richmond. They thought Early's intent was to reunite with Lee at Petersburg, so they sent a significant portion of, of their men to rejoin Grant and Meade in Petersburg as well, without having confronted Early. Now remember, relieving pressure on Petersburg by diverting Union strength west to the valley was Early's principal objective. So when he learned that two Union corps had moved back east, Early decided to go on the offensive against the remaining Union force, consisting now of just three divisions collectively called the Army of West Virginia, uh, commanded by Crook and also including a young brigadier from Ohio by the name of Rutherford B. Hayes. Um, as another footnote, and there seems to be a, a lot of them lately, um, Hayes was later elected governor of Ohio and from 1877 to 1881 served as the 19th president of the U.S. Hayes took office following one of the most contentious elections in American history, um, the contention arising from the narrow electoral margin separating Hayes and Democrat Samuel Tilden. Neither won a recognized majority of electors uh, due to disagreements as to the actual vote counts in three states. Um, complicating matters further, there was almost certainly electoral fraud, and it was almost certainly committed by both parties. Ultimately, a bipartisan election commission uh, appointed by President Grant and the legislature resolved the race through the Compromise of 1877, under which Hayes was awarded the presidency and Republicans agreed to remove the federal troops that had occupied the South for the 12 years following conclusion of the Civil War, which uh, effectively ended Reconstruction. Returning now to the Shenandoah Valley in the summer of 1864, the opposing forces under Jubal Early and George Crook clashed on July 24th at the Second Battle of Kernstown the first Battle of Kernstown being part of Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign. The result was a decisive Confederate victory, followed by a disorganized Union retreat down the valley through Winchester, Virginia, and then Martinsburg, West Virginia, ultimately crossing the Potomac River around Williamsport, Maryland. If you're familiar with the area, they were more or less moving north on Interstate 81. Early opted to capitalize on the victory and the resulting Union disorganization by sending cavalry uh, across the Potomac into Union territory. Early viewed it as an opportunity for, quote, some act of retaliation, and his men were much less polite guests in Maryland and Pennsylvania than Stewart's had been a couple years before. 
Let's return to James McPherson uh, for the highlights. Though some of the events he references are um, from Early's foray across the Potomac that had actually happened a couple weeks earlier. Quote, During their raids, some of Early's soldiers made as little distinction between military and private property as did many northern soldiers in the south. Indeed, they went the Union invaders one better. For while the latter often seized or burned whatever tangible goods they could find, they rarely took Confederate money, which was almost worthless. But northern greenbacks were another matter. The rebels levied $20,000 on Hagerstown and $200,000 on Frederick. Besides drinking up the contents of Francis Preston Blair's wine cellar, burning down the Silver Spring home of his son Montgomery, the postmaster general, and putting the torch to the private residence of Maryland's governor, end quote. Now, if you continue um, north on I-81 from Winchester, Virginia, and through Martinsburg, West Virginia, and Hagerstown, Maryland, it doesn't take too long, uh, an hour drive or so altogether, and you'll find yourself in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. And that's precisely where early dispatched rebel cavalry under General John McCausland. Chambersburg is in Pennsylvania, north of the Mason-Dixon line, but as we've discussed, the town had suffered a lot more during the Civil War than just about any other northern town, uh, even before the summer of 1864. Historian Leva Baker, writing in 1972, describes Chambersburg's experience during the first three years of the war like this, quote, Chambersburg had been raided, occupied, liberated, and reoccupied since the war had begun in April 1861. Horses, wagons, and grain had been appropriated frequently and freely. Warehouses holding government stores had been destroyed. Merchants had had to spend a good deal of time and money shipping their goods to Philadelphia for safekeeping whenever occupation seemed imminent, then shipping them back again when the danger had passed. The town's women folk had nursed hundreds of wounded soldiers, both Union and Confederate, following the battles of Antietam and Gettysburg. And, of course, most of the eligible young men had been taken into the Union Army. Nevertheless, Chambersburg's involvement in the war had been superficial thus far. Hardship, yes, but not much more. Indeed, with some rare exceptions, the soldiers' behavior on those previous occasions had been almost courtly. Lee himself, while camped just outside the town uh, during the Gettysburg campaign, had issued a general order reminding the troops, quote, We make war only upon armed men, and we cannot take vengeance for the wrongs our people have suffered without lowering ourselves in the eyes of all. Lee's order prohibited unnecessary or wanton injury to private property and promised arrest and summary punishment to all offenders. And that's the end of the uh, quote from Leva Baker. Um, as that uh, Leva Baker quote suggests, that superficiality was about to change. Jubal Early had far fewer qualms about extracting vengeance than did Robert E. Lee or Jeb Stewart. Marching at Early's express direction, McCausland and the two cavalry brigades he commanded arrived in Chambersburg in the early morning hours of July 30th. After the token Union resistance withdrew, 500 rebel horsemen, about a fifth of McCausland's force, occupied the town. McCausland ordered the people of Chambersburg to locate the civic leaders for a discussion, but no one could be found initially. 
So McCausland told the residents that could be located in his words, quote, I informed them that I would wait six hours, and if they would then comply with the requirements, their town would be safe. But if not, it would be destroyed, in accordance with my orders from General Early, end quote. So what were the requirements? Uh, Early, through McCausland, demanded that the town of Chambersburg pay a $500,000 ransom, and he would also accept a discounted rate of $100,000 if the citizens of Chambersburg paid in gold. Uh, No word on whether Early was set up to accept Bitcoin. And the ransom asked of Chambersburg was not issued as a request. Should the town fail to pay up, Early instructed McCausland that Chambersburg should be laid in ashes. Per Early and McCausland, the ransom was to serve as restitution for residents of the Shenandoah Valley whose homes and farms had been burned and destroyed not long before by Union troops under the command of General David Hunter. While in occupation of the Shenandoah Valley, Hunter, in response to attacks on his men by irregular fighters, had published a proclamation distributed throughout the valley stating, quote, For every train fired upon, or soldier of the Union wounded or assassinated by bushwhackers in any neighborhood within the reach of my command, the houses and other property of every secession sympathizer residing within a circuit of five miles from the place of outrage shall be destroyed by fire, end quote. And Hunter's proclamation had been no idle threat. More than a few farms and homes in the Shenandoah Valley were burned as promised. Hunter had also ordered the burning of the Virginia Military Institute, further south in the Shenandoah Valley at Lexington, Virginia. Uh, Jubal Early was well aware of the destruction and declared, quote, It was time to try to stop this mode of warfare by some act of retaliation. Unfortunately for the residents of Chambersburg, they would bear the brunt of the promised retaliation. And if you're wondering why Chambersburg, it was just a matter of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. As Early explained later, quote, It was the only town of any consequence accessible to my troops, and for no other reason. End quote. The six-hour period that McCausland allowed proved to be an ugly time for the citizens of Chambersburg. Leva Baker writes, quote, Chambersburg residents later testified that Confederate soldiers' behavior was barbarous from the moment they entered the town. According to witnesses, plunder began immediately at Mr. Paxson's shoe and hat store, followed by looting at liquor stores and in private homes. Residents were stopped on the streets at pistol point and divested of watches, purses, and clothing, end quote. Citizens debated paying the ransom, with townsfolk coming down on either side and many not believing that the Southern Cavaliers, who they had known to uh, have acted gentlemanly in prior visits, would actually follow through with McCausland's threat. The debate, though, was probably academic. The bankers had left town upon hearing that Confederates were in the vicinity, and the citizens probably couldn't have scraped together half a million dollars had they tried. Remember, Chambersburg was a fairly small town, and that was an awful lot of money in 1864. Ultimately, Chambersburg didn't cough up the $500,000 ransom demanded by McCausland, and McCausland ordered the town burned. Interestingly, the officer initially tasked with carrying out the burning, uh, Colonel William Peters, refused the order. 
According to McCausland, Peters, quote, declared that he would break his sword and throw it away before he would obey it, as there were only defenseless women and children in Chambersburg, end quote. But Peters was arrested for insubordination, and there were other troopers willing to follow the order, and a large percentage of the town was methodically put to the flame. McCausland had made the threat, and the town having failed to comply, McCausland made good on it. Rebel cavaliers went from building to building, appropriating valuables, though sometimes allowing residents an opportunity to carry out of the building what they could, first, and then lighting fire after fire. One Confederate officer recalled, quote, It was impossible at first to convince the people, the females particularly, that their fair city would burn. Even when the torch was applied, they seemed dazed. Terror was depicted in every face, women, refined ladies and girls running through the streets wild with fright, seeking some place of safety. I hadn't bargained for this, but such it was, end quote. Another rebel officer wrote later of the, quote, outrageous conduct of the troops on this expedition. Every crime in the catalog of infamy has been committed. While the town was in flames at quartermaster, aided and directed by a field officer, exacted ransom of individuals for their houses, holding the torch in terror over the house until it was paid. The grand spectacle of national retaliation was reduced to a miserable huckstering for greenbacks. After the order was given to burn the town, and before, drunken soldiers parade the streets in every possible disguise and paraphernalia, pillaging and plundering and drunk." End quote. In Leva Baker's essay on the burning of Chambersburg, she notes that while many rebels had no hesitation in burning and looting the town, some did. Quote, a Confederate surgeon wept when he saw the flames rise and spent the morning helping victims escape. Another Confederate gave his horse to a woman to carry what belongings she could out of town. A Confederate captain put his men to work extinguishing fires in one section of town. Another officer unbuckled his sword in disgust and left it in a Chambersburg house, where it was discovered later in the ruins. End quote. The July 1864 rebel visit to Chambersburg was brief, but the impact severe, with around 400 buildings burned to the ground. Those sustaining an immense amount of property damage, around $1.5 million in 1864 dollars, Chambersburg, of course, was rebuilt. However, by one account, it took nearly 30 years before the town's housing situation was equal in terms of quantity and quality to pre-war levels. Now, there was also another northern town, Cumberland, Maryland, where Jubal Early had dispatched rebel cavalry uh, after the Second Battle of Kernstown with uh, orders similar to what McCausland had received with regard to Chambersburg. Cumberland, though, was spared, as the commander on the scene, General Allegheny Johnson, was a Marylander, and he didn't want to participate in the wholesale destruction of civilian property that had been experienced by residents of Chambersburg and the Shenandoah Valley, and would be experienced by civilians in Georgia and South Carolina, too. And, of course, the residents of the Shenandoah Valley would soon learn that Compared to the destruction yet to come from Philip Sheridan, what they had experienced from David Hunter and his men would seem like small potatoes. Shortly after the Confederate victory at Kernstown, Grant installed General Sheridan as the Union commander in charge of operations in the Shenandoah Valley. 
Sheridan succeeded in taking firm control of the valley, and, through scorched-earth tactics, in terminating the valley's role as the breadbasket of the Army of Northern Virginia. There would no longer be any distinction between public and private property. To quote Grant's orders to Sheridan regarding operations in the Shenandoah Valley, orders Sheridan performed thoroughly, quote, The people should be informed that so long as an army can subsist among them, recurrences of these raids must be expected, and we are determined to stop them at all hazards. Give the enemy no rest. Do all the damage to railroads and crops you can. Carry off stock of all descriptions and Negroes so as to prevent further planting. If the war is to last another year, we want the Shenandoah Valley to remain a barren waste. As an epilogue, after the war, Jubal Early, who had argued against secession, became one of the most vocal defenders of the Confederacy after its fall. When Lee surrendered, Early fled first to Texas, then Mexico, and then Cuba, and finally to Canada. He returned to Lynchburg, Virginia a few years later, after receiving a pardon from President Andrew Johnson, where he resumed his legal practice and, more significantly, spent the next three decades as a writer. Until his death in 1894, Early identified himself as an unreconstructed rebel and wore only gray clothing. Early's memoir was the first published by a key military figure in the war, and he helped found and served as president of the Southern Historical Society, an organization dedicated to promoting the lost cause, a telling of the Civil War that romanticizes the pre-war South, lionizes Confederate military leaders, defends secession, and emphasizes Union numbers and industrial capacity as the causes of the inevitable Confederate defeat. More than just about anyone else, Jubal Early's writing and organizational efforts shaped the lost cause and the perception of the Civil War in the South, and in much of the rest of the country, for nearly 100 years after Appomattox. That's going to do it for our uh, mini-series, Raiders of the Lost Cause. It ended up being a little more stream of consciousness than prior efforts, so I hope everybody enjoyed it. It looks like next time out, we're going to be taking a look at the Dahlgren Affair. If you're not familiar with the Dahlgren Affair, or if you are, I hope that you'll tune in. It uh, is one of the closest things the Civil War has to a mystery novel, so I expect it to be a lot of fun. As a little bit of a postscript, uh, there's been a few people inquire about supporting the show financially. And so I wanted to announce that we're not really set up to do that and don't have any plans uh, to open a Patreon account or anything like that anytime soon. However, I want to say that I very much appreciate the sentiment and am grateful for everyone who takes the time to listen to the podcast. It is beyond wonderful that there are people out there interested in uh, listening to me talk about the Civil War. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can reach us at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com, gray with an E. As always, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. 
The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.